Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. This is one of our series of episodes where we focus on books that we think are of special interest and quality. Uh, for you who are our regular followers, and I think this one definitely falls in that category. I'm extremely uh, uh, happy to be joined by Craig Unger, who is the author of American Compromise, How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power, uh, and Treachery. This book is part of a series of books that he's done over the past few years on what Uh, He characterizes as the Republican War on Democracy, and I would characterize it that way, too. Welcome, Craig. Great to be here. Thank you, Dave. Um, uh, Clearly, um, you know, sex, greed, power, and treachery draws anyone to a book. Um, But, you know, I have a special uh, sort of empathy for you putting this book out now, because I put I put out a book uh, a few months ago focusing on uh, Trump's betrayal of the country. And the problem with Trump is, is that there have been so many betrayals, so many crimes uh, that they get lost. And, you know, pe- you know, you have to remind people that the original sin of Donald Trump was reaching out to an American enemy and embracing that enemy. Uh, and I think one of the things that's terrific about your book is that it it makes the case that that is a much bigger, lo- you know, longer in development story than most people um, than most people know. And I, I, you know, I'm just wondering from the beginning perspective, how do you think the fact that this guy, um, uh, you know, became an asset of the Russian government? has influenced all the other subsequent stories that dominate the headlines? Well, I think it's a big, big deal. And I think he, you know, in a lot of ways, I think of uh, Trump as a mobster. I'm one of the first uh, people who sort of uh, became his colleagues was the KGB. So I went back to the beginning and started to look at how they cultivated him. And uh, in many ways, you know, one of the big differences between Russian and Soviet intelligence between the KGB uh, and Russian organized crime. Uh, it's very different than say the relationship between the FBI and the Italian mafia we're used to where, where the FBI is always at war with the Italian mafia. Uh, the Russian mafia is, uh, is a tool of Russian intelligence and Trump linked up with them more than 40 years ago. We, I, I go back to 1980. Um, and they started cultivating them. They, one of the, you know, it was seemed to be a rather banal part of his first great success. He was developing the Grand Hyatt Hotel in 1980. Uh, like any hotel, it needed TV sets. 
But rather than buy them from a, a major third-party vendor, he got them uh, from, from an electronics store run by Soviet emigres who were working for the KGB. And that's how it all opened. And it opened uh, all sorts of uh, 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 problems and, and a, a relationship with, with Russian intelligence that I think continues to this day. Well, over the, that first period of time, you, you, you describe this uh, uh, strange electronic dealership, downtown Manhattan electronics dealership, uh, and their ties to the KGB. Um, but, 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 but slowly they sort of reeled Trump in. This was um, apparent, you know, apparently um, uh, supported by the fact that he married a, a, a woman um, Ivana Trump, whose father was an informant for the um, communist government of Czechoslovakia, had ties there. Um, and within just a few years of that Grand Hyatt project, you had Trump in Moscow. Right. So the, 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 the tractor beam pulling Trump into this was kind of intense early. Right. Um, that's exactly right. Uh, his, Trump's in-laws in Czechoslovakia uh, were, were at least talking with the Czech STB, which reported this was part of the East. People kind of forget the whole Soviet Union and the East Bloc, but they reported to the KGB. And then uh, once Trump, the, the, the sale of the TV sets was essentially uh, a KGB exercise by a spotter agent who was supposed to find new talent to recruit for, for the KGB as potential assets. And they fixated on Trump and they reeled him in. They started in, uh, inviting him to Moscow. That was the KGB who invited him to Moscow. And uh, you know, I had a wonderful source on this, a former uh, KGB agent named Yuri Schwitz. Uh, and he had been working in, he was a spy in Washington for the KGB while his colleagues in the New York station were reeling in Trump. So he had firsthand information about some of this at the time. And uh, he told me how uh, the KGB would uh, oversee, would first uh, get the ambassador to invite a potential target. And sure, they flattered Trump enormously. They said, my God, you're, you're your building is so wonderful, the Trump Tower, which opened in 1983. We need one, uh, a sim something similar in Moscow. And in fact, that seemed ridiculous, if you remember the Cold War, that uh, the Soviet Union was very much communist back then. The idea that they wanted a monument to capitalism in Red Square uh, was obscenely ridiculous. And you kind of have to be vain and narcissistic to buy that. And Trump was all of the above. Well, on that point, you and, and, and your collaboration with this guy, uh, Schwetz, describe, you know, the ideal asset. And, you know, I can't think of Trump as ideal for many things, but on, as, when it comes to being the ideal asset, he checks every box, doesn't he? Absolutely. He's vain. He's narcissistic. He's not that bright. And uh, if you get him going, we really want... Uh, uh, you know, it'll be very prestigious for you to have a building on Red Square. He buys it uh, and seems completely oblivious to the political realities of the time. Well, the other thing is that, you know, we, we, we look at it now and, and um, you know, 
we see a guy who was elected president by with at, at least with the assistance of 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 the Russian government, Russian intelligence service, who then showed remarkable fealty to uh, Putin uh, and pursued policies that no other president would have pursued with regard to Russia. And we think of that as, you know, perhaps the greatest, you know, intelligence stop of all time. I mean, you know, as, 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 as good as it gets. But one of the things that's interesting in your book is Trump was seen as a big win by the Russians much earlier than that. Uh, in fact, I, 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 if I recall correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, as early as, you know, he started, you know, he, he ran a bunch of newspaper articles, the ads that, you know, offered a point of view uh, on Russia that was essentially directly taken from KGB talking points. And if I, if I recall correctly, it was, it was in the late 80s. It was in 1987. And there was a newspaper ad that appeared in September of that year. Uh, Trump had just come back from the Soviet Union. And during that period, he was sort of pumped full of all these KGB talking points. And if you look at newspaper articles, uh, say from 1984 to 87, you'll see a, a different kind of Trump. Uh, uh, try, he's trying to reinvent himself as an expert on foreign policy, which of course was idiotic. I mean, he talks to the Washington Post and New York Times reporters saying that he should be negotiating the SALT talks, the strategic arms limitation talks, because his uncle was at MIT. And he knows nothing about the subject. But according to your the same uncle that saved us from from COVID, by the way. Yes. Because it, 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 it enabled him to understand science so well. Right, right. And um, uh, you know, you're, they were pushing all his buttons and he loved it, pretending he was uh, uh, an expert on all this stuff. There was even a cover photo of him on the on a magazine called Manhattan Inc. in which Trump is holding a dove, uh, as a dove on his shoulder, as if he is a messenger of peace, love, and whatever. Um, so they would would say, you, look, you're, you're, you've got such refreshing unorthodox ideas, you really should run for president. And sure enough, in 87, uh, this was the, near the end of Reagan's second term, and George H.W. Bush was vice president and was the presumptive nominee, but Trump makes an exploratory uh, uh, stab at entering the race against Bush, and he goes up to New Hampshire for the primaries, uh, and he then takes out this ad in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Boston Globe. And it's got all these weird talking points, like we should end up, America should stop being such, so allied with Japan. Well, that's what the Soviet Union wanted, but there was no, we, we were at a perfectly good relationship with Japan. There was no reason for us to end it. Um, to talk a little bit about how this evolved um, through the 90s and the early 2000s. Trump uh, became more and more interested in, in real estate ties there. Of course, we know sort of the end game of all of that, which is, you know, Michael Cohn and, and, and Lev Parnas and some of these characters talking about building a Trump Tower. Um, and prior to that, you know, doing the, uh, the, the, the Miss Universe thing. But 
in the in the in this interim period, how was it percolating? Well, there were several things going on. One was money laundering, and uh, I saw that start as early as 1984, when a guy named David Bogdan, who was allegedly tied to the Russian mafia, walked into Trump Tower, met with Trump, and put down six million dollars in cash, and said, "I'll take five condos." And Trump, being Trump, didn't say, "Where'd you get the money from?" He just took it and looked the other way. And one of the things with money laundering through real estate is it, it's very easy to do uh, transactions who are, that have two uh, characteristics. One is this was an all cash transaction. And two is the beneficial owner uh, was anonymous. Uh, and that's a good way to launder money. And Trump, Trump did that again and again. And it wasn't just he did it two or three times. There were over 1,300 condos, Trump-branded condos, that were sold under those two predicates, which set off uh, alarms for money laundering. And in, in it's it's very uh, odd to me that that's never really been fully investigated. I, I mean, it's hard to prove that Trump had knowledge, but I think a good lawyer could suggest that if it's happened 1,300 times, that's a pattern. It's not just, oops, I did it once or twice. Uh, 1300 is a lot. Well, you know, that gets into one of the sort of central issues of the book. And I've talked to many people who've read the book and like the book. And, and I've, re I've read some reviews that were quite positive about it. But there were a couple of reviews that were sort of taking issue that essentially said, said this thing that keeps getting said about Trump, but Trump again. And I think you, you, you were victimized by that a little bit, which was, well, he didn't prove with a smoking gun that Trump was a Russian KGB agent. And, you know, I think, you know, what you do is you say, you know, there's this and this and this and this and this and this. And here are a hundred things that show a pattern of a man being compromised. And it doesn't matter if he's a KGB agent or he is simp they simply have a thumb on the scale with this guy. When that person becomes the president of the United States, it's a big deal. And, you know, to me, that's the big takeaway. But, you know, I, I allow you to defend yourself on that. Right. Well, there, there are two points. One, uh, one is um, I regard this. It's similar to what you just said, but it, it's almost like uh, if you have a jigsaw puzzle with a thousand pieces and you only can find 800 and put them in order. You know what? You can still see what the picture is, even though the, some a few pieces are missing. The, the other is, I mean, in you know, I, I did get Yuri Schwitz to describe on the record an incident that happened in 1987. And it was right after Trump took out that full page ad in the New York Times and the Washington Post. And Yuri was back in Yasinevo, which is the headquarters for the first chief directorate of the KGB uh, in what was then the Soviet Union. And at the time, uh, the the, the KGB circulated an internal memo, which alas, I don't have, but Yuri told me about it. Uh, and it was celebrating the acquisition of a new, um, a new recruit, a new asset they'd recruited. And that he had just uh, complied with them and had executed a successful active measure, that is a disinformation operation. And they attached to it the very ad we've just been talking about, which was signed by Donald Trump. And Yuri has said that on tape. He said it on the record. Uh, he said it on, video, on camera. Um, no one has taken issue with that 
uh, or in fact, any material issues in my book. And I, I defy you, if you look at the whole sequence of events that with one data point after another, try to come up with another explanation for what was going on. Trump was doing things for the for the Russians. They were doing things with him. Well, you know, the, you know, uh, on that point, uh, you know, we just this week have learned that the Supreme Court finally is going to allow the Manhattan DA uh, look at Trump's taxes, um, and um, uh, you know that, of course, is going to have to do with tax fraud, um, but. I was particularly struck and shocked by the fact that um, the Mueller team decided not to look at Trump's finances. And, you know, to me, that was grotesque dereliction of duty, grotesque. And, you know, Mueller may be a great man who's who's led a, a, a distinguished life prior to that, but for whatever reason, he was allowed to be pushed into that, allowed himself to be pushed into that corner. You lose all of this context because what you talk about, just even money laundering in condos creates um, a relationship. But of course, if Russian oligarchs are buying homes of his for multiples of what their value are, or Russian uh, investors are backing Deutsche Bank loans to Donald Trump that no other bank would give him, and, and, and both those things seem to be true as well, then it, you know, it's very clear this guy's on the hook. And again, it doesn't matter if he you know, colluded or didn't collude crime or not a crime. It, it, he's compromised, which is, you know, of course, the title of your book. And I was just wondering, when you heard, saw you know, this, the, this factor of, of, of the dissent, essentially discredits the Mueller conclusions. What was your reaction? Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I, I think, you know, when, when this whole thing started, if we go back to James Comey, uh, his investigation of Trump was a counterintelligence investigation. He was then fired and passed to Mueller. And when Mueller's investigation was started, it was also supposed to be a counterintelligence investigation. But somewhere along the line, Mueller caved and it became merely a criminal investigation. And I think the distinction is vital because a criminal investigation, you're supposed to prosecute crimes and put people in jail. But counterintelligence is supposed to go after intelligence operations. And a lot of them are technically, a good intelligence operation is technically legal. And there's a whole uh, sequences in my book where you see Trump being compromised, whether it's through money laundering, as you just said, or there was a part where uh, Donald Trump Jr. gave a, a speech in Paris at a French think tank, and he's paid $50,000, and all of that's legal. But the French think tank happens to be a Russian front. And Trump Jr. is being given uh, the talking points for what Russia wants uh, President Trump to do in the Middle East, and which he then executes by withdrawing from Syria uh, um, betraying our Kurdish allies and leaving Russia as a dominant force in Syria. So you see this happen again and again and again. And I think the distinction has been lost on the American people. They, I mean, how many people in this country know that, oh, the counterintelligence uh, investigation was killed? I, I think that went unremarked. There were a couple of good pieces in the Washington Post on it. But other than that, it was not a big deal in this country. 
Yeah, no, it's it it certainly uh, seemed to die a warning. But I think you make another point here, which is you know a good one, which is that you know if you do intelligence properly, it's not illegal. If you know if you're if you if you're putting your thumb on it, and you know though if you look at how the Russians approached 2016, how they approached this administration since, they used the tools we provided them with. They used social media that gave them direct access to the American people as they have never had before in all of history. They used you know, the, the, the loopholes in our, um, our, our tax laws that have been created by real estate moguls you know, to, 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 to do this kind of money laundering that you know, allowed them to essentially pay off um, Donald Trump. And by the way, they're not alone in this. The Saudis did the same thing. Other people, you know, I mean, you know, if you look at who buy, who does money laundering of condos in, in New York City, that's the list of people who Trump gave preference to. Absolutely. And, you know, it's one of the issues we ha- we should be dealing with now. There's this uh, bill called the Corporate Transparency Act that has passed Congress, and it should end up eliminating uh, this kind of uh, sale of huge assets in anonymous transactions. But, uh, you know, it is not giving the complete transparency that I think we need in this area. And I think, you know, a lot of people think, oh, Trump is gone, it's all over, we can move to other things. I think now more than ever, we have to pay attention to the problems that allowed this to happen and to start cleaning them up. Well, yeah, one one thing that, uh, you know, it's a big red flag in all of this to me is, it's not just Trump. The NRA was used in the same way that Trump was used. Absolutely. And look at uh, all the uh, powerful white shoe lawyers from firms like Kirkland and Ellis and Jones Day. Uh, some, some of these guys are making more than $10 million a year and they're representing Alpha Bank or Oleg Deripaska. And truly, if you're representing, um, uh, you know, uh, one of Putin's oligarchs, you in effect are an intelligence agent for those, for Putin. And you're a very highly paid one and you're arguing against the kinds of sanctions that I think we really need uh, right now. And by the way, you know, there's a, you know, there are a whole set of other issues that are associated with this thing, you know, to be, you know, you know transparent as we always are transparent here at, at Deep State Radio. Uh, we have a contract. We um, produce a, a podcast um, for the government of the United Arab Emirates. Because we, we don't do lobbying or anything, but because we do that, we have to file a FARA notice. I'm regularly getting attacked on Twitter for being a tool of the UAE, but they, they don't change our content in any way. Um, but it's the kind of thing that should be flagged. It's the kind of thing that should be transparent. Somebody who knows us ought to know that about us. And then they can make a judgment as to whether it's coloring what we do or not coloring what we do. And the reality is, in the case of Trump, it was shielded. He tried to hide it. And if you had known it and you knew Trump's character, then you would say, holy mackerel, this is exactly the wrong kind of person that you want to have caught up. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm saying some of those law firms might have been twisted by this. They may not have been, but taxpayers, voters have the right to know and to make their own judgments. 
Absolutely, and so much of that was kept from voters uh, in the run-up to the 2016 election. And even now, it, you know, it's very complicated. We have enormous number of loopholes. If you look at financial uh, uh, campaign finance contributions, uh, it's very easy for someone like Leonard Blavatnik, who is a Russian oligarch, but he's also a naturalized American citizen. So he can give millions and millions of dollars to the Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee. Or Oleg Deripaska can build a coal mine in Kentucky, which helps out uh, Mitch McConnell. Right, and and you know, and and people people need to know that. Now, I, I think one of the things that's happened in this country that's perverse and 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 honestly, I didn't expect it was going to happen, um, is that there are seventy five million people in the Republican Party who voted for Trump knowing all of this. You know, they're, they're, they're people, they voted for McConnell again, knowing all of this. They don't seem to care. And I have to say, when you wrote your book on um, House of Bush, House of Saud, which was only 17 years ago, you know, th th those kind of allegations of ties caused a lot of buzz, caused a lot of concern. Even to this day, there is a lingering distrust um, of, of, the, of the Saudi relationship with the United States because of how it pulls ties. Um, but are we growing numb to this? Do, are, are we not caring as much? Is that, what, what's, what's wrong? Well, I think there are a lot of reasons and there's a lot, a lot of books to be written about this. One, I, I think social media is part of the problem. And I think it has siloed uh, so many conversations uh, that, that uh, you know, if, if I, I've never been in, you know, the idea of QAnon seems to me insane, and yet it does, there are millions and millions of people who actually follow this. Um, there is this cult-like, uh, I mean, Donald Trump, I think in a lot of ways had a cult of personality, but, uh, you know, I remember when I first heard of Pizzagate, the idea that uh, the Clintons had a pedophilia operation in the basement of this Washington DC pizza establishment. I couldn't believe anyone took it seriously, but in fact, millions and millions of people did. Yeah, you know, I, and I probably shouldn't, you know, confess this, but yesterday I saw a poll and the poll indicated that the, you know, one in four evangelical Christians believed in QAnon. Right. Um, and, 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 you know, I think, if we're going to be really honest, we've got to sort of come to grips with the fact that if you have sort of large swaths of the American people who are indoctrinated that they should believe things on, on faith, you know, and this is, you know, it's controversial because it gets really right to the core of religion, but they, that, that they should sort of, you know, believe things that seem to be, you know, otherwise impossibilities, it really opens the door. It really opens the door. And at, at a moment where you would think that, you know, science, for example, might be something you'd want to understand if you're in the middle of a pandemic, you know, and a lot of these people are like, uh, oh, but I read something and it says you don't need to wear a mask or vaccinations are bad. You know, hundreds of thousands of Americans die as a result of it. We seem to have lost sort of 
critical analytical skills as a country. Right. I, when I grew up, I mean, someone like Walter Cronkite could speak to most of the country, and it seemed to be a, a unifying force of shared information. And I think that's disintegrated as the media uh, has fragmented uh, first into hundreds of cable channels, but now literally millions uh, of atomized voices on Twitter and so forth. Uh, yeah, well, uh, I don't know. I guess, you know, I guess it means full employment for you and me for a long time. <laughs> um, you know, there, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of books to come. I hope, you know, as you produce the books, you'll be able to come back and we'll be able to continue the conversation. The book is American Compromise. The author is Craig Unger. I strongly recommend that you go out, get the book, read the book, understand it, understand what it says, understand what it doesn't say. It's deeply... Uh, disturbing. It's also deeply researched and fascinating. So American Compromise. Thank you very much, Craig, for joining us. And, uh, you know, be well, stay healthy out there in this Thank crazy you, world. All right. Bye-bye.